0: On may second twenty twenty two I was having dinner with two journalist friends in Brooklyn when one of them looked at an alert on his mobile phone and said abruptly, "The Supreme Court is overturning Roe v. Wade." The three of us sat there stunned, experiencing a historical moment that had always lurked over the horizon but that we had never really believed would arrive. Of course, it wasn't the decision itself. It was a draft decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, written by arch-conservative Samuel Alito and leaked by someone inside the court who, despite a lengthy investigation, has never been uncovered. The next day, protesters on both sides came to demonstrate in the plaza in front of the court. The PBS NewsHour's John Yang was one of many journalists reporting the story that day demonstrators on both sides of the abortion divide converged on the Supreme Court today. Abortion saves lives. Abortion saves lives. Abortion, abortion is violence. Abortion is oppression. Eighty percent of young people want to vote on abortion. They want it to go back to the state where they have a right to vote on it. Let the people speak. Supreme Court, let we the people speak. We are. We're speaking. we're speaking. I would have died without this law. Just so you know, you're sacrificing the mothers for the children. Abortion saves lives. You're sacrificing the mothers for the children. The battle over women's bodies has always been given to rhetorical extremes. Think about the imagery, a fetus supposedly writhing with pain and fear in the widely distributed 1984 anti-abortion propaganda film, The Silent Scream and pro-abortion demonstrators insisting with their own imagery that without legal abortion, women will gouge at their uteruses with coat hangers and knitting needles. While fetuses experience neither pain or fear, women did and do die without safe, accessible, and legal abortion. How many? Historian Carissa Haugenberg estimates that before 1973, when Roe v. Wade decriminalized the procedure in all 50 states, a fifth to a quarter of all pregnancies were ended by an induced abortion, and that approximately 200 women died every year from a secret or illegal procedure. While recorded abortions increased dramatically after legalization, deaths from terminating a pregnancy dropped equally dramatically to fewer than two dozen a year. Right-wing activists and legislators, we are told, are happy to return to a pre-Roe world, one in which women of color are far more likely to die or lose their fertility from an illegal procedure than white women. It is one in which pregnant Americans, no matter how young or how involuntarily conception occurred, will be forced to give birth unless they can make their way to a sanctuary state or risk prison and death for an illegal abortion. In fact, the Dobbs world is worse than the pre-Roe United States, where women and girls of some means, usually white, could go abroad to terminate a pregnancy legally. Or they might access what was called therapeutic abortion, a legal medical procedure that was available if the mental or physical health of a woman or girl was judged by a medical professional to be endangered by carrying a pregnancy to term. Now, Americans living in many Dobbs states and those who aid and abet them can be prosecuted for terminating a pregnancy, even if they obtain the procedure in a place where it is legal. Already, as anti-abortion forces enthuse about their love for the unborn and the trauma that abortion supposedly imposes on expectant parents, troubling stories about involuntary gestation are beginning to emerge. Three weeks after the decision in Dobbs was officially handed down, a 10-year-old girl, allegedly raped by her mother's boyfriend, was forced to travel to Indiana when she was denied an abortion in her home state of Ohio. In Louisiana, a woman was instructed to carry to term a fetus destined to be born without a skull, and experts anticipate elevated rates of illness and death from septic shock as those carrying a dying fetus are denied the right to abort. Dead women Murdered babies? Depending on whether you are anti or pro, one of these things haunts you. But here's the question why do we argue about abortion in extremes? The answer may be that we always have. If the anti abortion forces see a human life with full rights at conception, pro abortion forces have always mustered extreme cases too. Hideously deformed infants who will live short painful lives or women and girls whose social and medical well-being is fatally undermined by carrying a pregnancy to term. Let's listen to CBS News correspondent Fred Graham interview the anonymous Mary Doe, whose case was decided as part of Roe v. Wade on January 22nd, 1973. Now, the first two children you'd had, had they been taken away from you?
1: Yes, because I couldn't take care of them by myself, and I couldn't with my husband.
0: And now I believe you had one more, and it was also put out for adoption, wasn't
1: it? Yes, I put it out because of my husband.
0: Now, after you were unable to get the abortion for the fourth pregnancy, what happened? Well, I had to go on and have the baby and have it uh, adopted out. No child, much less four, should be born into the world to a mentally ill woman, should they? Well, a range of Americans might, of course, answer that question differently today. But feminist journalist Katha Pollitt asks... Why can't all Americans admit that abortion is and should be a normal event in a woman's life? Why can't feminists reclaim abortion for what it is, a common medical procedure that permits pregnant people to take charge of their physical, psychological, and economic health? An award-winning poet, essayist, and longtime columnist for the nation, Pollitt made this powerful argument in 2014 in her book Pro, Reclaiming Abortion Rights, It's a book I decided to revisit as we anticipate the one-year anniversary of the day we understood that the battle for abortion rights would have to be renewed. Join Katha and me for this episode of Why Now?, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, co-executive editor of Public Seminar, and the author of The Political Junkie Substack. This is Episode 17. Abortion on Demand and Katha Pollitt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Claire. So, Katha, the other day I picked up your book, Pro, which originally came out in 2014, and it seemed eerily prescient to me. I find I I
1: write best when I'm writing in an argumentative kind of a way. And at that moment, when I started writing the book, there was a lot of messaging in the reproductive rights world. That was emphasizing, oh, having an abortion really is such a terrible, painful thing, but we have to make it legal because otherwise people will, you know, will die. And I felt we'd lost sight of several things. One of them is abortion is a completely normal experience in the lives of women, whether it's one in three, four, or five women who will have one by the end of their reproductive lives. It's a lot of people and they don't always have them for, in fact, they rarely have them. You're not supposed to say that, but it's true for acute medical, terrible death potential reasons. And I think that's important to say, because if you don't keep reminding people of how common abortion is, then most women who have abortions are going to feel that they're all alone that those other women who have abortions have them because they would die otherwise, or they've been raped or similar. But I'm having one because I want to finish high school you know, <laughs> or because I'm not ready to be a mother. I'm 25. I don't want to do this. I don't have a partner. I, I don't like the, the partner I'm with would never be a good father. I mean, all kinds of reasons which become caricatured by the anti-choice people as, oh, she wants to fit into her prom dress. That was a big thing a while ago. Or she wants a European vacation. And as I point out in the book, it's never, I want to go camping in the Ozarks. It's, you know, it's always a European vacation. In other words, abortion is something upper-class people do. Frivolous, selfish, upper-class people.
0: And of course, that isn't true. We know. And I I want to start with an abortion that was quite close to you, because that's really where you start the book, which is finding out that your mother had had an abortion and that she didn't even tell your father. Can you talk to our listeners about that a little bit? Well, that was a big surprise for me. I found out in a strange
1: way, which is after my mother died, I sent away for her FBI files because she was A communist. And I figured there would be something there. And I got back this, uh, you know, this bunch of papers with lots of crossed out lines. And it said, you know, in 1961, Leonora Pollitt was under the care of a physician for complications, uh, gynecological complications. And I asked my father, well, what was that about? And then he told me. And I was very struck by that. The first thing I wished was that she had told me. I felt that that was something I should have known that would have helped me in some way. But then when I thought about it some more over the years, I think, no, it was was just her business. You know, I've even heard from somebody who knew my parents back then that my mother had more than one abortion. And this wouldn't have been surprising because this was in the 60s. The birth control pill was only went on the market in 1960. And, you know, there was just a lot of, of abortion back then. So that was what gave me a more personal connection to abortion, because I've never had one myself. The diaphragm worked well for me, <laughs> this medieval method of birth control.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've never had an abortion either. And I also haven't had a lot of sex with men, so that explains part of it. But one of the things I noticed when I was young is that women often didn't want their husbands, partners, or boyfriends to go with them to the abortion. They usually wanted to be accompanied by a woman. And I wondered if you thought about that in relation to your mother. I mean, the the idea that the surveillance state was watching her. And her family didn't know is so poignant. It
1: is. It is. And and I can understand why women. Maybe it's true now too. Want to go through those things with other women. You just don't want to be accountable <laughs> to some man. You know, probably the man who put you in this situation. Uh, that seems completely understandable to me. So let's get
0: back to the writing of this book. You were struck by how people were making excuses for having abortions and they were portraying it in ways that did not seem realistic to you. How did that affect the politics of abortion?
1: Well, from my point of view, this kind of maybe catastrophizing is too strong a word, but this intense focus on women's motives and women's reasons which we don't do about a whole lot of other things. It's usually only about women and their sexuality. Well, every decision women make. Let me revise that. <laughs> they have to have very good reasons for it. I think the politics of that are, they're very individualizing. They, they prevent women and others from seeing the sort of the big common picture and put the focus on your abortion. You know, what were you doing when you got pregnant? Um, What are, do you, are your reasons good enough? And I think that any reason is a good reason. I mean, being a, becoming a mother, this is what people don't say often enough, Claire, is that becoming a mother, which I have done, is an enormous, life-changing, permanent, Change in your life in ways that before you have that baby, which doesn't say a baby for long, people always talk about babies. What about 15 year olds? It's just huge and you can't predict it. And therefore, I feel we should enter into motherhood very carefully. But all the emphasis is, is oh, You have to enter into abortion very carefully. Maybe abortion should... I mean, this is a terrible thing to say, I know, but maybe abortion should be more the default position than it is. You shouldn't have to have a good reason for not wanting to become a mother right then. You should have a good reason for wanting to be a mother when you become a mother. And as we all know, a lot of people of both sexes and all genders have children that they're really not able to be good parents for. So putting the emphasis on, oh, babies, they're so wonderful, which they are, they are, they are, I'm not denying that. But I
0: just think people should enter into it a little more carefully than they do. Well, and there's so many things that come out of what you're saying. One of them is the idea that women's sexual pleasure needs to be paid for, right? Oh, right. Yes, that's very important. There,
1: <laughs> Women's sexual pleasure needs to be paid for. Um, and, you know, we never ask this of men. Uh, I mean, theoretically, men who father children are supposed to support them. But that is really kind of a joke. For Not in every case. There are some men who really have stepped up to the plate in all kinds of ways and some who have been made to step up to the plate by, by the law. But it really, there is no way... Of forcing on a man what we are willing to force on a woman in terms of parent of in terms of parenthood. And that's pretty much okay um, with lots of people. If you were to try to impose these things on a man, it would not go over well, <laughs> either with him or with society in general. Um, if you were to say, you know, well, actually, now that you're now that you are a man who has fathered children, if you leave that marriage, we are going to impose confiscatory, you know, the actual real costs of raising, uh, raising 50% of that child. That, that, almost, that never happens. That never happens.
0: And part of what you're talking about here is that it isn't just money, it's time. And it is emotional care. Right. And so, even if a man were held to paying that full cost of what it took to raise a child, in fact, I think part of what comes through in the book is that we don't actually have the expectation that men will be good parents. We are grateful when they are, but the impetus toward shaming women into motherhood is very strong. And it's really just the opposite with men, right? It is. Um, And you know what's interesting? Like if you look
1: at men's magazines and women's magazines, the sort of female part of the internet and the male part of the internet, parenting plays a huge role with women. Everything having to do with fertility and pregnancy and childbirth and raising a child. And there's nothing comparable for men. Um, I'll give you one example, which is that... um, Think of how much emphasis is placed on women bearing a healthy child and how there was even a number of years ago, one of the government health agencies said, you know, you should start thinking about preparing your body for, pre- just assume you're, you're pregnant and you should live like that. Well, nobody's going to do that, but there's nothing like that for men. And yet, the more we find out, the more it does seem that male health, male age all play a role in how healthy the eventual child is going to be. Um, It may, for example, not be such a great idea for men to have children later in life in terms of the the health of that child. You never hear about that. It's all about, oh, women, yeah, you're 35. Now your odds of this, that, and the other thing have gone way up. It's almost too late. Do it now. (laughs) Have that baby today. We just don't incorporate fatherhood into our idea of men the way we do motherhood and women.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I want to turn to what you just said, because you make this point in the book, and I thought it was very powerful, the idea that all fertile women are pre-pregnant all the time. It says something about what women are for, right? Yes. Well,
1: you know, St. Augustine whose influence percolates down the centuries. <laughs> St. Augustine said, you know, well, what are women for? There's only one thing that women can do that a man can't do, that you can't do with a man, and that's have a baby. That's, that's it. Um, everything else men are as good at or better than women. And I think that often comes out, for example, in the idea, let's take the idea that being a mother is the most important job in the world. You know, it's a very important, I, I don't know that I want to call it a job, but it's a very important thing to do, a way to behave. But is it the most important job in the world? Is it more important to raise one child to healthy adulthood to the extent that another person, that a parent can do that, than it would be to cure cancer? I don't think so, and save hundreds of thousands of lives. But that notion that parenting is the most important thing, is very, very pervasive. And it is important. I mean, a lot of things are important in life. I gave up a lot when I became a mother. I mean, my husband and I, when we separated, we both agreed that we would live around the corner from each other in New York until Sophie went to college. And we did that. And that meant both of us had to forego certain opportunities and like to move to Brooklyn. (laughs) And, but, but it was important. It was important to do that. So motherhood is just baked into womanhood in a way that fatherhood is not baked in to masculinity.
0: It's very interesting. You should bring that up, Katha. I knew a couple once who literally hated each other and decided not to get divorced because they did the numbers and realized that living in two separate households meant they would have less to give their child to go to college. And probably made that child completely miserable. Well, that's what all her friends told her. But uh-huh. anyway, but but I, but I think the underlining of sacrifice is very important yes. because the idea of women being forced to have a child, and we now call it forced birth, is something that pro-life people are very casual about. Like, you know, it's just a different life. It's not a worse life. It's a different one. Well, that can be true. And I think there are probably many women who
1: reluctantly had a baby who were very happy that they had that baby. I've met, you know, in my travels in the abortion world, I've met women like that. So life does take us in strange directions. And yet you can't count on that, (laughs) you know? you can't say i'm about to make you do this thing that is potentially fatal and really um is going to change your life in every possible way but you're going to like it <laughs> you can't do that with people you have to let people make up their own minds
0: well and of course we also know that pregnancy and childbirth are more likely to be fatal or disabling for people of color for the poor for people who are not able to access good health care, so that there are real risks we're asking women to take on by forcing them to give birth.
1: Yes, and what's really interesting about that is that all these maternity wards are closing, precisely in sort of rural, you know, southern places, um, making it even more dangerous. And so there, you know, you there are so many ways in which you can see that the anti-abortion people really don't care. About women and their well-being, their happiness, their lives, their equality in other areas of life. You know, I mean, they could say I wrote a piece about this a long time ago. I said, you know, yeah, I can imagine that there would be some kind of anti-abortion feminism. What would it look like? It would have to look like a matriarchy, you know, where you were never reliant on a man. You had tons of support. In every conceivable way, you had advantages when you went back to work. I mean, like, for example, you know how soldiers get certain advantages? I haven't looked at this in a long time. It may not still be as true as it was when I wrote this piece many years ago. But um, soldiers get certain advantages on civil service exams. They get extra points uh, for the, from government on so civil, uh, civil service exams. Well, what about giving that to women who had children and had to stay out of the workforce for a while? There's nothing like that. The assumption is that you've been out of the workforce, your skills are rusty, your first obligation is going to be to your family, and so you're not going to be the good worker that we're looking for. But if we cared about women and children, we wouldn't go that way. We would go the other way. So here are some,
0: we're going to give you some wonderful presents, you had a baby, yay. And to get back to the argument we were talking about earlier, about how there are all of these exceptions that are sort of pushed forward as we fight for reproductive rights for women. Now, what we are seeing is cases, extreme cases being put to the fore 12-year-olds who are the victims of incest or mommy's boyfriend, women who are carrying dead fetuses with terrible abnormalities, these are all being pushed to the front of the media narrative to try and persuade people that we have to leave a window open for abortion. But you really argue in this book that that's the wrong strategy.
1: I'm not sure I'd say that so emphatically now because I think another way of looking at those extreme cases is now that, in fact, Dobbs has happened is to point up the extreme nature and of the anti-abortion movement and where it's going, that they really are willing to let women die. And that's what's happened in Poland and other places where abort- abortion is, you know, just completely illegal, 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 where the Catholic Church has all this power. I think it's really important to say this, this what you're really saying is that women should die. So I think we have to make that argument, but it can't be the only argument we make.
0: Right. Well, one argument we can make is that an embryo and a fetus is not a baby. And you elaborate on that in the book. Yes. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Well, yeah,
1: you know, there's, I wrote a piece a long time ago and it was called the, um, it was about the babification of the fetus hel- and helped out by some wonderful work by Roz Pachewski. And I actually won a prize for that piece, although by the time it was published in a women's magazine, was it Mademoiselle? I forget which one. It had not one sentence that was unchanged by, the, by the yeah. editor, <laughs> but maybe that was good, you know? Uh, so anyway, when the way the, unborn is conceived is it's a very, very tiny human being. It's that medieval idea of the homunculus. So it's there and it's floating in you, but you're erased. I mean, think of all the pictures of the, you see the pregnant belly that's transparent and in it is a baby, but that is not what it's like. It's not like that at all. And it, 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 it puts forward the idea that you are just the environment. And so then you get these, you know, these awful politicians who will talk about the host. You know, the woman is the host for the babies. It's sort of like you're a hotel. (laughs) Um, Or maybe it's a dinner, a whole dinner party going on in there. But the idea that the emphasis, as soon as that egg is fertilized, even before it's it's made it all the way into the womb and attached and everything like that, that that's a person that is an insane idea. That is not an idea that anyone could have if they thought for a minute about what a person is. A person can't be two cells. (laughs) A person can't be four cells. So what really they're saying is that you are your DNA um, in a very kind of primitive idea of what DNA is. And it's sort of add woman and stir. But that's not at all how we come to be human beings or even babies. But it's a sort of pseudoscience idea. And that those ideas are very popular, as you know. And it fits in with our obsession with DNA. And it fits in with our obsession with
0: not letting women have any rights. <laughs> uh, so it it's perfect. I really liked your emphasis on all the imagery, and I want to recommend to our listeners a book by Jennifer Holland called Tiny You. She talks about how the anti-abortion forces create these tiny little plastic embryos that they will hand out to children and say, you know, every one of these is a tiny you. And so the, the attempt to get the public to identify with the embryo or the fetus rather than the woman has been a long-standing theme. How do we correct that? I
1: don't have an easy answer to that because I think that babies and pregnancy and all that, these are very tender things. These are things that, you know, millions of people have felt great joy over and worked very hard to achieve. Um, and if we all were babies and Cells, blastocytes, once, where only half of us are ever going to be women, and fewer than that are going to have babies, and fewer than that are going to have abortions. I, I think we have to just think a little bit, and maybe it always will be a little tiny bit more abstract than the warm feeling that you feel for a baby. I think we have to respect the humanity of women. Even if there are these hard cases where you think, "Well, you know, do you really want to do that? I mean you know you're x months pregnant now, et cetera, et cetera, you have to let her be the deciding person, and that would come out of just general feelings of
0: of respect for human beings,
1: but yeah. we don't have a lot of that
0: either. <laughs> Well, and of course, one of the things we know about abortion is that the vast majority of abortions are done very, very early, and that after Dobbs and after all the laws that have been passed by states that force women to wait, force women to jump through all kinds of hoops, what that has accomplished is it means abortions are occurring later and later. And there's one whole segment of the pro-life camp that says, this is the tragedy. We could be getting these abortions earlier, but instead, exactly what you don't want to be happening is happening, and it's your fault. Are they making a mistake? Well, I think it's always good to sort of get your opponent in a kind of pincer
1: movement where you get you get to say, look, this is what you wanted, and this is what you get, and it's, there's a big contradiction there. That's always a good thing to say. I don't think we want to say, though, that people who have those later abortions are You know, are to blame or doing something really terrible and all like that. I think most people are going to feel that there is a difference between having an abortion at six weeks, which is the latest that you can have one in several states now, and which is basically like a missed period, and having an abortion, you know, when you're six months pregnant. I think it feels different. It's, you know, you felt that baby move inside you.
0: Before Roe, when I was in the eighth grade, a classmate of mine got pregnant. It was her boyfriend who got her pregnant. And then her parents sent her away, probably to have the baby, although we didn't know at the time. And we never saw her again. After Roe, I was in the 10th grade. And when my friends got pregnant, they would go to Planned Parenthood and they would get an abortion and they'd be back in school the next day. That's exactly what the anti-abortion forces hated, was that it became easy. For women to make their own decisions. How do we shift the ground and say it must be easy for women to make their own decisions?
1: That's a really great way to put it. It must be easy for women to make their own decisions. I completely agree with that. It's the mainstreaming of abortion pills is one possibility that if women can get these pills without having to jump through a lot of hoops and they just have a miscarriage at home. That is a way of taking back power. But I think it's, it's very difficult because of what we talked about before. People don't basically don't want women to make their own decisions without a whole lot of complications. And uh, they especially don't want younger women, teenagers doing that. I mean, some 10th grader going off and having an abortion, that's terrible. And you know, behind this, I think also lies the, the idea that women shouldn't be having sex. They shouldn't be having all this sex. I did. I did an interesting thing with a column once, where I asked all these pro-life people, anti-choice people. Excuse me. I asked the anti-choice people, "Okay, what's your what's your solution? What do you think should happen?" And I had a bunch of questions, like having to, well, what should happen with men and all like this, and The answers that came back centered around the idea that having sex was like a contract to have a baby if you got pregnant. And if you're not willing to enter into that contract, you shouldn't have sex. It was really kind of that simple. And it was a contract for men and it was a contract for women. But basically, the idea was non reproductive sex is a bad thing. And even if you, Think you're having non-reproductive sex. Maybe you're not. Maybe the birth control will fail or that time you didn't use it, et cetera, et cetera. And so they felt very strongly sex equals reproduction. And that is the fundamental thing that pro-choicers don't agree about.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there's an interesting analogy with the rise of abstinence only education that has replaced sex education, in which young people are deliberately kept ignorant of what constitutes sex and what constitutes sexual pleasure and how you have it safely. One of the things we've seen is a spike in young people learning about sex from pornography, Another thing we've seen is young women getting pregnant without actually understanding how or why that happened and not actually being able to access any kind of care or remedy until it's too late. So so there's this idea that being ignorant will help everybody and that, that even conservatives must know that doesn't work. So, so why are we still at that place, Katha, ideologically?
1: Well, it's a very puritanical country. And I think we go through, the it's, it's, it's this weird combination of a puritanical country that's also incredibly licentious. So we've got all this pornography. We've got all, we've got all this sex work. We've got every kind of gratific- sexual gratification out there that's possible at the same time as we think it's all terrible. <laughs> You know, and so that's why you find you know all these pastors. This is a remarkable thing. Who knew there were even so many pastors? But there are, and it seems like so many of these pastors are are being arrested for uh, messing around with underage people of either sex and doing all kinds of you know criminal things having to do with sex. And I think it's 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 because we pretend to be one thing and then we're really an, another. I mean it, it's it's very interesting you know in a country like, like like let's let's say Holland the Netherlands which seems so sane about all this where they don't have this whole taboo of teenage sex the parents will let the the uh boyfriend sleep over and and you can get birth you can get birth control without having a gynecological exam um which turns out to be a very good thing because Young women don't like gynecological exams, and they're not really necessary, it turns out.
0: Um, Big women don't like them either, but. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun down there. Um, just sort of being a little more relaxed about the whole thing. But also, uh, it, it turns out to work really well. But also, I think in some other countries that are a little more sensible about this, they haven't separated sex from relationship to the extent that we do here. And so you have a little more concern for your partner. Men should care. Men should care about her as a person. And when you have a very intense kind of hookup culture, you don't get that. So that's my old-fashioned idea.
0: And and I think there's something else old-fashioned about the repression the- thesis, which produces more sex but it's all secret i read something a few years ago it was a very poignant fact actually is that now that most porn is available on streaming services you can tell where it's being watched and apparently the porn watching capital of the entire united states is a hotel in downtown salt lake city utah i was gonna say Um, utah yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and all of these people sort of sneak off to the hotel to to watch oh porn. God. And, you know, it, it's funny, but it's also so sad on a certain yes, level. It is. Um, so, um, so let me ask you another thing, Katha. There was a moment in Pro where you say the Supreme Court has been chipping away at Roe. But they can't overturn the precedent without creating chaos all over the country because it would turn abortion back to the state legislatures. And it just stopped me dead. I thought Katha had a crystal ball. She knew what was going to happen, and it happened. But did you know, or were you just following this to its logical conclusion? As uh, my husband
1: loves to say, we're not smart enough to know the future, (laughs) Um, But you could just see it that all these people, you know, this was one of the many fake compromise op eds that kept getting written is let let's let each state do what it wants. But of course, this can't be because, first of all, we're one country. And secondly, it would never it would not be settled even in the state legislatures because each state is uh, divided against itself. Um, I mean, even in red, you know, red states have a lot of blue people in them, and there are a lot of red people who are pro-abortion. I mean, pro—you know—I shouldn't say pro-abortion; they are pro-choice. I mean, pro-abortion is fine with me. I'm pro-abortion. I'm sort of pro-abortion too, but anyway, um, so you could just see that coming because this is a profound issue of values, and can't be solved. Roe is the compromise. It says, you know, it says you can have an abortion up until this point. After that, it has to be very serious health-related reasons. That's the compromise. You cannot get an abortion the day before birth, as the anti-choice people are always saying. I guess my the basic thing I want to say is that the idea that letting each state go its own way would solve the problem is false because each state uh, has all kinds of people in it. Each state would become, as it has now become, the intense focus of national groups. You know, the, the right to life movement is a national movement. And they're not going to say, oh, well, in New York, they've they've decided to go in a pro-choice direction. Well, fine, we'll just go over here to Texas. No, they don't say that. They say, well, we've got to work harder in New York. <laughs> and, and And our parties are national parties. And the Republican Party, at the national, at every level is, has allied itself with the anti-choice movement. And they're not going to stop doing that. There's an
0: illusion that there can be a state by state solution to this. Yeah, I agree with you. And, And just to sort of emphasize your point, the number of people who think abortion should be outlawed or even restricted are a minority of Americans. And that is true in every state as well, because in red states, when they try to put referenda on the ballot to ban abortions, they are routinely defeated.
1: Oh, yes. Yes. that That's very, very true. I mean, depending on which poll you look at and how they phrase the question, which is often very stupidly. I learned a lot about polls writing that book. And, you know, people say, are you pro-life or are you pro-choice? Well, a lot of people are both. I mean, who's going to say they're against life? The most that you can get the number of people who want to ban abortion up is like 20%. But really, when you drill down, it's more like 7%. But here's the thing. That doesn't matter because what matters in our weird thank you founding fathers country is where people are and how much they're concentrated so that you have states where the anti-abortion movement is tremendously strong, and they they control the state legislatures, and that's the way it is. So it doesn't matter if most people nationally think one thing or another. You have to really drill down. And then what's really disturbing to me is that up and maybe it's changed now since Dobbs, but the anti-choice people are more single-issue than pro-choice people. They're fighting to... To change things. So they have that extra impetus to go to the polls and they meet naturally in their churches, which we don't have anything like that. You know, you go to church and then you have coffee and then you write your letters to the state legislator all together, or you get on the bus and you go to the demonstration. Uh, we don't have anything like that. So they are more united and they get a bigger bang per person on their side than we get. And that needs to change. That really needs to change. It needs to be that if you are, if you are a pro-choice, you have to be a single issue voter. I wouldn't vote for anybody, no matter what other wonderful positions they had, who was in favor of criminalizing abortion.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't either. And neither would my mother. So Katha, reading pro, which is almost 10 years old now. Wait a minute. Yeah, it was published in 2014. Oh God. It's now 2023. Oh, such a has been. No, it 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 was like a breath of fresh air. I I it stiffened my spine. It straightened my head out. But if you were to say why our listeners should read this book now, what would you say? Well, I think I would say it gives a very
1: clear and readable overview of all the arguments you could possibly make (laughs) to be pro-choice. And it gives an unfortunately still relevant picture of what the political forces are.
0: And that's it for today's show. You can go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes and to listen to more episodes, leave a comment, or ask a question. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, which gets you one newsletter a week that may or may not include a podcast. Or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. You can also participate in subscriber chats. You can subscribe to Why Now on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Please share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.